Hello and welcome to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Stephanie Heaney. And I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And welcome to this COVID Stage 3 episode, where all characters are wearing masks in indoor settings, except when they are enjoying a substantial meal. (laughs) And today we tell the tale of three gods of craft who return to the workplace to provide an essential service. And you'll remember at the end of our last story that Ogma downs tools and stops working to bring wood to Brez to heat his fort and subsequently sends a message in the new system of writing he has invented to the four corners of Ireland. Well, that's starting to have an effect on the other gods. And the gods in question are Jean Kecht, the physician who is the first to see the message and he gets an idea and enlists the other gods, Gobnu the blacksmith, and Kredna the silversmith, to help. This seems like a good place for a recap, because Jane Keck's idea involves rectifying something that went wrong for the two a day, that's the god people, back in episode 5, during their victory over the fur bullock at the first battle of Moitura. During the climactic phase of the battle, the two a day chieftain Nuda meets the fur bullock champion Shreng in single combat. And though the two-a-day end up winning the battle, Nuda loses his right arm, which by the laws of the two-a-day makes him ineligible to lead them. Meanwhile, Brez takes down the fur bullock chieftain Ocad McIrk, though he has a lot of help from the Morrigan battle crows, and it isn't the great feat the other gods think it is, but they choose him to be their leader. And this proves to be disastrous for the two-a-day, as Brez quickly becomes a tyrant, forcing the other gods to do hard physical labour all the hours of the day, and taking most of the product of their labour for himself and his lackeys, and sending some of it as a tribute to a mysterious people across the sea. So that brings us up to date with the story so far. We'll crack on now with Dean Kecht and Nuada's silver arm. Fado, Fado in Aaron. Jean Kecht stares at the rough tree branch that landed at his feet only seconds before. There are strange marks on its bark, definitely etched by someone, certainly deliberate. But what do they mean? He asks himself. Dean Kecht doesn't take his eyes off the cryptic carvings as he strides through the shanty town. His bare feet mash clumps of grass and stray pieces of thatch into the mucky ground as he winds through streets bordered by mud huts. Gods, demigods and mortals dodge out of his way, each one dagger-eyed as they glare back. Dean Kecht stops outside Gobnu's hut and fixes his gaze on the figures on the wood. He stares so hard that his eyes blur. The shapes change become little people dancing before his eyes, animals stampeding, abstract jittering lines before returning to their original form, just as he hears a familiar voice. The ones you love and the product of your labour will be carried away to a land beyond the sea if you do not take heed of these words and use them for your protection. He frantically looks around, expecting to see his comrade Ogma return from the west, but he's nowhere to be seen. He looks at the branch again. The ones you love and the product of your labour will be carried away to a land beyond the sea if you do not take heed of these words and use them for your protection. It is the voice of Ogma. He's sure, but he realises that it comes from inside his head and that the words he hears are the carvings on the branch. What have you got there? 
Jean Kecht turns around to see Gobnu the smith standing in the doorway, watching him with the slightest hint of suspicion and a smidge of amusement on his face. He hands Gobnu the branch. The smith regards it for a moment. What is this? Lines. What's so fascinating about it? Jean Kecht moves closer to Gobnu, slinging one arm over his brother's shoulder and tapping the branch with his free hand. Look at it. Really look at it. Gobnu stares and stares. The writing blurs, becomes a smith striking metal, horses riding into battle, abstract jittering lines, before returning to their original form. And then he too hears the voice of Ogma. The ones you love and the product of your labour will be carried away to a land beyond the sea if you do not take heed of these words and use them for your protection. Gobnu looks at Dean Kecht, confusion apparent on his face, and he asks, What does it mean? I don't know, replied Dean Kecht, but I do know of something we can make with our labour that cannot be carried overseas. Well, what's that? asks Gobnu. An arm, Dean Kecht replies. An arm? I'm sure I could carry an arm away on a boat if I tried, says Gobnu. Jean Kecht laughs. Indeed, I have carried away many's an arm from the field of battle, but you couldn't if it's attached to the body of a god. Gobnu's face lights up. Yes. An arm made of silver. Credna and I can craft it if you can bring it to life. I'll send word to the forge. Jean Kecht nods solemnly. I think I have just the spell we need. At the forge... Credna has a searing hot fire of oak charcoal burning when Jean Kecht and Gobnu arrive. He holds a rectangular block of smelting silver over it in the grip of a vice. I've been squirreling away this charcoal for an occasion like this. When the metal is a translucent orange and red, he passes the vice to Gobnu who is ready with an anvil and a small lump hammer. Gobnu hammers the silver, turning it as he goes, hammers and hammers and hammers, turns and turns until it begins to look cylindrical in shape. When he deems his work sufficient, he hands the vice back to Kredna, who heats the metal some more. He drives a thick metal rod into the centre of the cylinder and withdraws, passing it back to Gobnu, who fills the receptacle with hot tar. Gobnu and Kredna work together, hammering small chisels into the object, driving lines into the silver against the hardening tar, shaping it. Kredna carefully hammers the metal into the shape of a hand at one end, while Gobnu traces muscle and sinew. When it is done, Kredna holds aloft a perfectly crafted arm, though one without a movable joint or any function above that of an ornament. Jean Kecht nods his head and smiles at the two craftsmen. I'll send for Nuda and begin preparing my spell. The magic of twilight streaming through the door of the forge is temporarily interrupted by the arrival of the former chief, Nuda, a perfect specimen of godly strength but for the want of a right arm, having lost his to Shreng in the battle against the Furbolg. 
What is this matter of urgency that required my immediate presence? He asks. Jean Kecht puts the Owen branch into his hand. Nuda stares at it. The lines dance between the twilight and dying glow of Kredna's charcoal fire until they become words. The ones you love and the product of your labour will be carried away to a land beyond the sea if you do not take heed of these words and use them for your protection. He looks up at Gobnu and Kredna, who are holding an ornate silver arm. Jean Kecht ushers Nuda towards a chair and he sits down. Gobnu and Kredna hold the upper part of the arm against the stump below Nuda's armpit. Jean Kecht closes his eyes, stretches out his arms, and moves the flat of his palms in a sunwise motion around the joining of silver to flesh. He goes into half a trance and booms the words. Nothing is higher than the heavens, nothing is deeper than the sea, by the magical words that Ogma wrote, by the life-sustaining substance of the Dagda's cauldron, by the foresight of the Morrigan, sharp as Gobnu's signs, let Gobnu's work come to life. Exquisite as Credna's art, let Credna's art come to life, joint to joint, sinew to sinew, joint to joint, sinew to sinew, joint to joint, sinew to sinew. Jinkhecht opens his eyes. Tendrils of Nuada's flesh meet tendrils of silver. They intertwine and merge and mesh until it is impossible to say where flesh ends and silver begins. Nuda flexes his arm. He tests his grip, clenching his hand into a fist. Gobnu hands Nuada a sword. He grasps it with his silver hand and holds it aloft. Let's see Brez carry this away. So in the last episode, we saw the beginning of resistance to Brez's rule. And in this one, we see the resistance armed. Armed. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so we talked about this recurring theme of limb loss and replacement back in episode five, when we focused originally on Nuada. And the most obvious connection we mentioned here was in Welsh mythology, where you have Clud Errant, Clud uh, the Silver Hand, a later version of the Britannic god Nud or Nodens. And the most obvious modern myth associated with limb loss and replacement is Star Wars. It's a recurring theme there, but the most obvious example in the em- is in The Empire Strikes Back, where Luke Sk- Skywalker's hand is sliced off by Darth Vader's lightsaber. And we later get to see his new artificial hand working for the first time, which is what I was thinking of when I was writing the part about Nuda clenching his new hand into a fist. But the unsung hero of that scene in The Empire Strikes Back is the medical droid 21B, who may be named after a pencil, but he's the one who gives Luke his new hand. I think that's possibly more information than listeners need on a minor character from Star Wars, but... Um, and I'm still, listeners, dear listeners, I'm still pushing for a Patreon free, or Patreon episode where all of the Star Wars references are removed. <laughs> but anyway, it is the characters who give Nuada his new arm rather than Nuada himself that we focus on today. Namely, Jean Kecht, the musician, or the musician, the physician even. But, I mean, these I, gods are multi-talented, so. I prefer his earlier stuff. Oh God, Jesus. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Jean Hecht, the physician, Gobney the blacksmith, and Kredna, who is a silversmith here, but is sometimes described also as a coppersmith. 
And I really like the collaborative process the three gods engage in to create Nuada's arm and the interplay between science and art and magic. Yeah, we're conditioned today to see these things as separate and almost antagonistic disciplines. But until until very recently, and you see traces of this right into the 19th century, they were very much complementary. And it's not a coincidence that the words chemist and alchemist are very similar. The latter is the etymology of the former, and some of the first chemists were also alchemists. By today's standards, alchemy is a peculiar mix of magic and science, but it was alchemists who pioneered the methodology of conducting experiments and recording results that we know today as the scientific method. And they were probably best known, however, for their attempts to mix various substances in an attempt to turn them into something else. And in that respect, there is a bit of alchemy going on in this story. Yeah, Gobnu and Krajna's part in the creation of Nuda's arm is a mixture of art, craft and science. The science of the smith is seen in, seen in the smelting of the metal and the art and craft is in the shaping of the metal into something resembling an arm. And then the magic comes in when Jean Kecht recites his spell that coaxes the two substances, silver and flesh, to merge into one and bring the silver arm to life. Now, this is probably a good place to mention a big story decision we made. And if you have read the Second Battle of Maitura, either in the original Middle Irish or in Whitley Stokes' 1891 translation or in any of the versions derived from that, you might know that the last part of the spell joint to joint, sinew to sinew, is not actually uttered by Jean Kecht, but by his son Mich, who saw the silver hand that his father had put on Nuada and thought that it was evil. When Mich recites the spell, uh, flesh grows over the silver arm so that it becomes the same as natural flesh, a natural flesh and bone arm. Now, some, sometimes we make story decisions because parts of the original manuscript contradict each other and for consistency we have to go one way or the other. And there's a bit of that uh, here. But the section of the text where this happens in the original leads to a disturbing sequence of events that not only open up some plot holes but also cast a shadow over the character of Dean Kecht and contradict the position he holds in every other story he is mentioned in. So Jean Kecht sees his son's act turning silver to flesh as evil and he attacks him with a sword. It's a fairly gruesome passage but I'm going to read it here anyway. This is from the Whitley Stokes version. That cure seemed evil to Jean Kecht. He flung a sword on the crown of his son's head and cut the skin down to the flesh. The lad healed the wound by means of his skill. Jean Kecht smote him again and cut the flesh until he reached the bone. The lad healed this by the same means. He struck him with the third blow and came to the membrane of his brain. The lad healed this also by the same means. Then he struck the fourth blow and cut out the brain so that Mich died. And Jean Kecht said that the leech himself could not heal him of that blow. After that, Jean Kecht buries Mich and... 365 herbs grow on his grave, which are collected by Jean Kecht's daughter, Armed, and arranged according to what ailment they are supposed to cure. To add insult to injury, Jean Kecht goes and scatters them all, so that no one would know which herbs cured what disease, which makes him sound like an awful blaggard altogether. 
I'd love to know who or what is buried in the garden that caused 365 types of weeds to be grown out there. But (laughs) anyway, there's a big clue in the text that this sequence is a later edition, probably inserted by the author of the 12th century manuscript, altering the 9th century source material. It says that Dean Kecht confused the herbs so that no one knows their proper cures unless the Holy Spirit should teach them afterwards. Yeah, so the passage doesn't make sense, really. There's no punishment for Dean Kecht, and there's always punishment in early Irish literature. And later on in the saga of the Second Battle of Maitura, Mick is alive again and in the full of his health. It also makes a mockery of Dean Kecht. Mark Williams writes in his book Ireland's Immortals, A History of the Gods of Irish Myth, that the murder makes a nonsense of Jean Kecht's role as an exemplar of, of the profession of medicine. He kills for no reason other than jealousy and pride, a clear contravention of medical ethics. And then he goes on to destroy pharmaceutical knowledge, preventing diseases from being cured. That's not Jean Kecht. That's not the Jean Kecht we know from other sources. So there is a story in the Dinshankas where Jean Kecht does kill someone. And we mentioned this way back in our very first episode in the poem about the naming of the River Barrow, the son of the Morgan, who is also called Meike, which is the genitive form of Meich, has three snakes growing in his heart, which, if left alive, will destroy Ireland, killing everyone. And Jean Kecht is left with no other option in this situation than to remove the heart and destroy the snakes, which, of course, is fatal for Meike. It's a difficult choice, but clearly the ethical choice, as otherwise Michael will still die eventually and so too will everyone else in Ireland. I wonder, is that, is that a bit one of those, like, which would you pick if there's yeah. the train is going? <laughs> anyway. Um, snakes. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> They're nothing but snakes on. <laughs> it's probable that the Dinshankas version is older and pre-Christian in origin, and it certainly paints a more flattering picture of Jean Kecht and the medical profession that he represents. The snakes in the Dinshenka's tale are of interest in terms of comparative mythology. The Greek god of medicine, Asclepius, kills a snake with his staff, but then witnesses another snake, bringing it back to life by placing a herb in its mouth. You might not know the story, but you will have seen Asclepius's staff. The staff with the serpent wrapped around it is to this day a symbol for the medical profession, and in some countries you actually see it on the side of ambulances. I never knew that that was the name of that staff. There you go. There you go. Every day is a school day. Um, but yeah, I suppose that's further evidence that Jean Kecht was a symbol of everything that is, is good about the medical profession. And this really comes from the fact that, the, or this can really be seen, I suppose, in the fact that the tract in Brehen Law that covers injuries and compensation is called Brehe Jean Kecht which is Jean Kecht's judgments. We've mentioned Breton Law on this podcast before, and I think it's likely that it's something that will crop up again and again, given the relative importance it has historically, because it has influenced mythology, but also mythology has influenced Breton Law in turn. So a brief refresher. Breton Law was the legal system that existed within Ireland before the coming of the Normans. And this law was developed by judges, Brehem, and is an incredibly complex system of law that provided a legal structure at that time. So unlike later forms of law, in this system, in the Breton system, there's no distinction made between criminal and civil law. So civil law is like being any sort of kind of non-criminal legal issue. So maybe your personal injuries or defamation or contract law issues or whatever. In addition, 
As there were no, no police, it was up to the injured party or their family to seek redress for any wrong suffered that contravened Breton law at the time. As there was no courts with juries as we have today, any crime could effectively be redressed by the perpetrator paying some fine or compensation to the victim or the family of the person they wronged. There is a small cohort of people in Ireland who lament Ireland's move away from the Breton legal system, and they'd have you believe that it was a bastion of equality, but we gently suggest here on the show that the people who come out with wild statements <laughs> about going back to Breton Law might do well to read a little more on it or perhaps keep listening to the podcast. Yeah, read a book, lads. Uh, there's <laughs> a misconception that Breton Law was much more progressive across the board than the Norman common law system that followed. And while there are very interesting aspects of it and there are some parts of Breton Law that did bring an increased amount of equality for certain classes of people, and particularly when it comes, I suppose, to the status of women and so on, it is really important to remember that Breton Law was incredibly hierarchical. In ancient Rome, people were nominally equal before the law, but society in Ireland at this time was obsessed with status. So how the law applied to you both in terms of your status as a victim of some kind of crime or wrongdoing, or how you might be viewed as a perpetrator of a criminal act, in fact, depended very much on what your rank or status within society was. So, for example, where someone sustained, say, a facial injury, if they were the highest grade of lord, they would be entitled to a milk cow as compensation. But if they were only an apprentice and sustained the exact same injury, they would receive only a single fleece in compensation. And we'll get into this in more detail later. The other thing that's important to note is that there were actually a lot of, there was a lot of variety in terms of how these laws were applied across Ireland. Brehat Jean Kecht sets out a list of offences and penalties relating to personal injuries and much like any other old Irish law tracts, as much space is given to the rank of the victims as to the actual injuries that might be sustained. The measure of a person's status was called their honour price, or log nainach, literally meaning the price of his face, and this would have to be paid for any major offence committed against a person. Things that were considered major offences included murder, serious injuries, theft, but also satire and refusal of hospitality. And the tract also includes information on the fees that physicians could charge for treating their patients. For example, when a person sustains a serious injury, the physician is entitled to the equivalent of half the penalty that's due to the victim. And for lesser injuries, they might receive a proportion between one third and a quarter. I suppose Jean Kecht's got a fair few quid for the snakes. I suppose so. Um, also clearly demonstrates the origins of the proud Irish tradition of very expensive healthcare and <laughs> doctors pretty much naming their price. Yeah, it's getting more and more expensive, isn't it? 60 quid to Jeez. see a GP these days. I'll nearly head up the fields and see, can I get one of those 365 herbs to yeah. rub on myself or something? But anyway, in terms of the fines set out in this tract, Uh, to compensate for an injury. The Brehat Jane Kecht refers to payments that might be made in silver or in cows or in seats or showed valuables or jewels. Though elsewhere, a cummel is listed as a unit of currency for compensation payment. And a cummel in this context means a female slave. And for example, in another law tract from the mid-7th century, it is said that where a man sheds the blood of a bishop, he must pay the fine of seven female slaves or their equivalent in gold or silver. 
So where an assault took place, the procedure was that a victim was brought to their own home to be minded by their family while supervised by a doctor who was racking up the fees um, for a period of nine days. And if the victim died within the nine days, then the perpetrator would be liable for the full penalty for killing them. However, if they were still alive after nine days, upon formal examination by a physician where they were if, if they were recovered to the point that they no longer needed nursing, then the offender would only need to compensate that person for any kind of lasting blemish or injury that they had. If after nine days, though, it looked like a recovery was unlikely, things weren't looking good, well then the full rate of compensation would be payable. The Brad Dean Act is incredibly detailed in its approach to injuries. For example, it provides compensation rates for six different types of tooth injury that might be sustained, listing the front tooth as being worth the most. There is also a reference to Twelve Doors of the Soul, which historian and author Dr. Patrick Logan suggested were particularly mysterious and dangerous in that any injury to any of them, though they might first appear trivial, can often result in the death of the victim. So the twelve doors include the Adam's apple, where a block causing a fracture of the cartilage would almost certainly cause death, and the navel, where a blow might cause a rupture to the bladder or stomach. It also refers to the seven principal bone breakings and wounds, which cause vomiting blood or passing blood. Disfigurements of the face were considered to be particularly bad injuries, as they could potentially expose the injured person to ridicule. And it should be noted here that what your face looked like at that time was obviously quite important because a blemished man was then considered ineligible for kingship. And this is all set down in, in these Breton law tracts. And when I was doing the research for this, I was struck by some of the items in this Breton, how we still have the hallmarks of some of that today. For example, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't help but think of, um, there's a thing called the Book of Quantum that's used by the Personal Injuries Assessment Board to assess the value of personal injuries. So essentially this is a book for lawyers where they set out how much the loss of a digit or how much your arm break might be worth or so on. Um, and it's and that's actually, it's you know, if you Google it, you'll find it. It sounds a bit sci-fi, actually, the Book of Quantum. I was just going to say. But it is, anyway, to, to come back to this stuff, it, it is also noted in the Brahe that the final assessment of, say, an illegally inflicted head injury might take place up to three years after the original offence had took place. And it wouldn't at all be uncommon for contemporaries or personal injuries cases to take years and years too. That would be a fairly standard thing to happen, you know. You don't know why why it's called the Book of Quantum, do you? I don't know. If you are about to make a quantum leap joke, right? (laughs) I'm going to ask you now. (laughs) Just for me, please. (laughs) How did you know? Just I just did. I just felt it in my bones. <laughs> anyway, the Brahajin Kect is not the only evidence we have of Jinkect's lasting importance in matters of medicine. Another piece we have comes from something called the St. Gall Incantations, which is a lovely example of something I'm really interested in, and that's the intermingling of pagan and Christian folk magic. There's examples of this all over the world, and we've mentioned some uh, before on the podcast from Iceland, Italy, and Portugal. St. Gall lived in the late 6th and early 7th centuries, and he was a disciple of St. Columbanus, also known as Columkill. And the St. Gall incantations come from fragments of a 9th century manuscript, so roughly contemporary with the source material for our story today. And it's a series of magic spells and instructions for making charms and curing ailments. And one of them 
interestingly, specifically names Jean Kecht. And this one is for curing various ailments. And that's, that's the actual title. I'll just read this extract. I save the dead alive against belching, against javelin cord, against unkind swelling, against iron wounds, against an edge fire burned, against a point a dog bites. Let him be sharply red, three nuts withering. Believe that three sinews are woven. I strike his illness. I overcome wounds, lamenting of blood. Let it not be an endless swelling. Let him be healthy. Pouring on, I invoke the salve left by Jean Kecht with his family. That what it is poured on be whole. I almost said, let him be simply red. (laughs) That's not what you want at all. (laughs) Now I'm trying to think of a Mick Hucknell joke, but it was it was was sprung on me. Yeah, so there's another spell that mentions Gobnu, and you recognise this because I used it in an altered paganised form for the first part of Jean Kecht's spell in today's story. Nothing is higher than the heaven. Nothing is deeper than the sea. By the holy words that Christ spoke from his cross, remove from me the thorn, very sharp is Gobnu's science. Let Gobnu's gold go out before Gobnu's gold. I'm not sure what a gold is, but... You don't want to Google that in case it's something rude. (laughs) Well, I don't think anybody else is going to know if it is or not. Guarantee you, someone is going to <laughs> someone is going to send us a message and be like, "You could just, you could literally just Google what is a goad right now." In fact, what is a goad? To drive an animal with a spike stick, provoke or annoy someone, like you know, to goad someone. Oh, is no, it I've like never, I've never heard it used in that? Um... Oh, it's a tr- okay. What is a goad in the Bible? The goad is a traditional farming implement used ah. to square a guide line. It's a stick. It's a big stick. That makes sense. Cattle prod, maybe. Yeah, that'll be it, yeah. But anyway, we'll move on. We'll leave that there. I mean, to be fair, actually, considering recently there was that conversation you had where loads of people didn't know what a pike was. Oh, yeah. So maybe people wouldn't know what a goad was either. I mean, I didn't, but, you know, I knew what a pike was. I've got <laughs> yeah, I've won in the thatch. <laughs> We meet at midnight. Um, the two other main characters in this story, Gobnu and Credna, don't do anything overtly magical. But we have to bear in mind that there was a very fine line between science and magic. And the blacksmith was actually perceived or believed to possess supernatural powers. In fact, there was a hymn or a, a psalm that called for protection against their spells, along with the spells of druids and women, no less. So it's called Patrick's Hymn and it's recorded in the Thesaurus Paleo-Hibernicus. Um, it sounds like some sort of diet really, doesn't it? A 1903, it's a 1903 <laughs> volume edited by Whitley Stokes and John Strachan un- and it's under the section The Irish Hymns in the Liber Hymnorum. It's too long to read in full here, but the relevant section goes, I summon today all those powers between me and these evils. Against every cruel, merciless power that may oppose my body and soul. Against incantations of false prophets. Against black laws of heathenry. Against the false laws of heretics. Against the craft of idolatry. Against spells of women and smiths and druids. Against every knowledge, a person's body and soul. I can imagine wearing a a black cloak and, you know, 
belting that out because when you think about it 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 sound really sounds like a spell in and of itself and i think a lot of this stuff like it's it's consistent with a lot of stuff in in the book of psalms and the old testament and i don't know if there's anybody to be into this but grab the bible there if you have one go to the book of psalms and go to i don't know psalm 140 there's nobody else around just chant it belt it out loud and I'll tell you you feel like you're a druid like you know <laughs> I mean, not that I've ever Sorry. done this. But <laughs> well, I tell you, for the purpose of the people who can't see you right now, you're not looking like someone who's never done this. I, when you know, when we were saying that, and it was you, you read that line, you know, against the craft of idolatry, against spells of women and smiths and druids, and all I could think was, Jesus, would this work on Morrissey? You know, <laughs> hey, God, what a terrible joke! This is too much time in your company. But you know, that Awful just made me think. Jokes. That Gavnu, which can also be pronounced Gavnu or Gaunu, is the origin. Well, it's the you know the the word for Smith and the origin of McGowan, which is yep. if, if your name is Smith, that's your name in Irish, McGowan. So you're the son of El Gavnu there. Yeah, don't we know of a, a fine person called McGowan who jumped out in front of me on West Street and dropped out there not too long ago and shouted "Good Tobin," <laughs> and I almost dropped, very gasped. But anyway, back to this. Um, so. What were we talking about? Smiths. Oh, yeah. So even without magical powers, smiths were extremely important in ancient Ireland from the Bronze Age right through to the medieval times in which most of our mythology was committed to paper. So it isn't surprising that you had not one but two gods representing different aspects of the craft. In fact, there were many more than that. Uh, Bridget, or more precisely one of the three Bridgets, represented female smiths. A very dangerous category if Patrick's hymn is anything to go by, but we'll come back to Bridget in, a, in another episode. So that's all we have time for today. But if you have been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it's not free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and invest in things like additional recording equipment, books for research, and down the line, paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas <laughs> oh, you love. God. I know you think that. I'm telling you, dream big, dream yeah, big. Dream big. We're saving. We're saving up our yeah. few quid. Every little down helps. In the credit union. Anyway, so there's a range of benefits at different price tiers and from just three euro a month you can get early access to each episode, story scripts and enhanced show notes. And this month, patrons on the five euro tier and up will be getting two sound bonus episodes. So go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. I also do want to mention really quickly that one of the resources that I used for the research on Brehaging Hecht was a book called A Guide to Early Irish Law by Fergus Kelly, um, which if you have an interest in the area of Brehan Law, I would suggest that you take a look at. Uh, anyway, you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook at Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And I also want to say thanks so much to all of the people who send really nice messages to the Instagram account because it's, it's me that looks at them. And it's very nice and I we appreciate your feedback a lot.
And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings, and if you like the show, and even if you didn't, I don't care, do us a favour and give us a five-star rating. It really, really, really helps us reach a wider audience. So hopefully we'll see you back here sometime soon for our next episode for more incantations to ward off the powers of women, druids, and Morrissey. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good one, Slán. Slán live. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.